You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And now with your Bibles open to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 31. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Let's bow and ask God's blessing on our time before we study his word. Our Father, it is with great joy that we are able to have a copy of your word in our own language and and before us, each one of us. We thank you for the clarity of your word and the truth that is contained herein. It is our desire and our prayer that, O Spirit of God, you would be our teacher today for the glory of the name of the Father and the Son, and that you might be honored in and through your people. Teach us and instruct us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have seen as we're making our way through the Gospel of John chapter 7 that Jesus is probably the singular most polarizing figure that has ever lived in human history. Nobody had a way of dividing people like Jesus did. In fact, if you're one of those people who says to yourself, well, I think Jesus is a uniting figure and we can all gather around the name of Jesus. If that's your thinking, you have entirely the wrong Jesus. You certainly do not have the Jesus of the New Testament. The Jesus of the New Testament was somebody who divided people. He divided believers from unbelievers. He divided true converts from false converts. He divided his friends from his enemies. He divided those who belonged to him from those who did not belong to him. Jesus was a very polarizing figure. Everywhere he went, his message and his declaration of us, about things concerning us and our need for him, and who he was, polarized and divided people. And it is amazing to me that the reactions to Jesus vary in the Gospels from eliciting the most loving adoration and affection from the heart of man that is imaginable to eliciting at the same time the most gross and passionate hatred from the heart of man that is imaginable. And he did both. He did both. He elicited both of those types of responses. The only person who could ever say that they are neutral or have not made their mind up about Jesus is the person who has never heard of his name. For the minute you begin to teach somebody about Jesus or make truth claims about who he is and what he said, immediately you draw a line in the sand that people fall on one side or the other. They either reject it or they embrace it. They either love him or they hate him. But you cannot remain neutral because to remain neutral is to hate him. So there is no neutrality. You either line up on the side of embracing him and loving him and giving him your worship and adoration because of what he claimed to be, or you line up on the other side and you hate him. And we have seen these two responses as we've worked our way through John chapter 7. We've gone back and forth. There was a group in Jerusalem who said, he's a good man. There was a group in Jerusalem who said, no, 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 he's an evil teacher. He leads the people astray. And then there was the crowd who said, the the religious leaders, they, they don't really know that this one is the Christ, do they? And then there was the religious leaders who said, we're going to kill him the first chance that we get. 
And then there were some who said, we don't really think this man can be the Messiah because when the Messiah comes, we're going to know where he's from. And we know this man's birth, his lineage, his mom, his dad, and his hometown. And since we know where he's from, and when Messiah comes, we're not going to know where he's from, this one cannot be the Messiah. Then there was another group who said, no, 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 we believe in him because when the Messiah comes, he's not going to do more signs than this man has done, will he? And all of this, all of chapter 7 is really building toward this crescendo down in verse 43 where it says a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And and chapter 7 is all about a division among a crowd. In chapter 6, we saw a division between the false sheep or the false converts, the shallow unbelievers and the true believers. Those who embraced him said, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? Those who would not embrace him said, we're tired of this teaching. This is too much for us, and we're going to leave. And there was a division in chapter 6. In chapter 7, we see another division. This time it is in the crowd in Jerusalem. Some are saying we are willing to embrace him, at least as much as he has presented himself to us. Others were saying we will not embrace him. We will not love him. And so with the belief expressed by the crowd in verse 31, there is in verse 32 another opportunity and an attempt for the Jewish leadership to try and seize him. Now last, well it wasn't last week, was it? It was two and three weeks ago. We looked at that group in the crowd who said, we cannot know, this man is not the Messiah because we cannot know where the Messiah comes from. And since we know where he is from, he cannot be the one. And we looked at that response and that shallow understanding of the Messiah and really a judgment that they made in disobedience to what Jesus said in verse 24 about judging just from outward appearances. They had made an assessment of him based upon outward experiences, appearances and came to entirely the wrong conclusion. Now we have a different group in the crowd, verse 31, who believes in him. And in verse 30, there was an attempt to seize him, but because it was not his hour, nobody could lay their hands on him. And we looked at the sovereignty of God and how God uses even the plans of wicked and sinful men to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Somebody asked a question. This was two weeks ago after verse 30. And this is a good question, and we've addressed this before, but I want to answer it. And the person, in fairness, who asked this question is not confused about the doctrine of God's sovereignty, but they asked the question because they wanted to hear me answer it, I think. The question was this. If God has appointed a day on which you will die, and that is unalterable because he knows the future and he knows it infallibly, and if God knows the future infallibly, then it must come to pass just as he knows that it's going to come to pass. The day of your death is not going to surprise God. So if God knows the day of your death, and if God has written that, and there's nothing that can change that, and you have an appointed hour just like Jesus has an appointed hour, if that's true, and if you believe in that sovereignty of God doctrine, here's the question, do you look both ways before you cross the street? Good question, isn't it? And I answered by saying, I do look both ways before I cross the street, and I lock my doors at night, and I stay on my side of the road, and I drive with a seatbelt on, and I sleep with a gun near. I do trust the sovereignty of God, but I apply all of the appropriate means to ensure that the sovereign purposes of God will be accomplished in my life. And for people who do not understand the doctrine of God's sovereignty, a lot of times they will raise that objection. If you believe that God is sovereign then why would you do this? Why would you not just throw up your hands and say, well, if God is going to have His way, then I don't have to do anything to see to it that that way actually gets had. If God's going to do it anyway, if God has if God has ordained who's going to be saved, why evangelize? Look, I believe in the sovereignty of God in all things and in salvation. And I believe that the Father has given a people to the Son and that the Son will come and He will save and He will secure and He will sanctify all of God's elect and He will not lose one of them. And there is no chance that any of those whom God has chosen should fail to come to salvation 
or that they will fail, having been brought to salvation, fail to be glorified with the Son and secured everlastingly all the way into heaven. So why then do we evangelize? Well, if I believe that, why evangelize? Did I preach the gospel last week? I did. And we're going to preach the gospel this Friday night when we have a bunch of parents and unsaved family and kids over at the church facility. And we, we, we preach the gospel to Wanna Games. We preach the gospel every Friday night. We believe in the proclamation of the gospel. You know why we preach the gospel on Friday nights? You know why we preach the gospel every chance we get? Because I believe that God has guaranteed the salvation of those whom he has appointed to eternal life. And that's the phrasing of Acts 13.48. Because I believe that God is sovereign, I am, I can rest secure that the application of the means that God has committed to us will result in what God has purposed is going to come to pass. So in preaching the gospel, I don't rest in my own ability to convince people that they need to respond to that gospel message, and I don't rest my confidence in the willingness and ability of people to understand it and make a right choice. You know where my confidence rests? In the God who is powerful enough to change the heart, which is what needs to be changed. So we do believe in the sovereignty of God. All right. That was all for free, no extra charge. Verse 31, this is where we're at now. We're gonna, in order to have something to hang our, our hats on through this passage as we work our way through it. Verse 31, we're gonna notice the belief of the crowd. Verse 32, the hostility of the Jews. And then verses 33 and 34 is a warning that Jesus gives. So the belief of the crowd, the hostility of the Jews, and then a warning that Jesus gives. Beginning in verse 31, but many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? Now the but at the beginning of verse 31 contrasts this group of people with the group of people described in the verses above. The group of people described in the verses above are those who said, he can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. And since we know where he's from and we won't know where the Messiah is from, he can't be it. In the contrast, there was a group who came to the conclusion that he was the Messiah. Verse 31 and they, and, but they, this large group believed in him when they saw the signs. Now here's the question that verse 31 raises. This is a difficult question. I don't think this, I'm not sure I can answer this, but I'm going to raise the question even though I might leave you without an answer. Here's the question. What type of faith or belief is it that is described in verse 31? They believed in him. What type of belief is it? Now I raise the question for this reason. As we have worked our way through the Gospel of John, we have seen that not all faith is equal. Right? There is a belief that saves, and there is a type of belief that damns. The belief that saves is the belief described in chapter 6 in the Bread of Life discourse, eating my flesh, drinking my blood, receiving me entirely for salvation and sustenance. That's the belief that saves. But there is also a type of belief, an intellectual assent, and an outward and shallow belief that damns. And we've seen two groups of people in John so far that had that type of belief. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 25 says that at the in Jerusalem, at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name, observing His signs which He was doing. But Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men, and because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. That type of belief in John chapter 2 was a belief that didn't save. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't commit himself to them because he knew their hearts, that it wasn't true, genuine, saving faith. There's also the type of that belief that damns is also evidenced in John chapter 6 with the crowd, right? The crowd in John chapter 6 who followed him for the signs, they came, the bread, 
and the signs and the miracles and the feeding of the 5,000. They followed him all the way across the lake. And what did they say when they got to the other side? They believed in him. And what was their request? Show us another sign. Give us another sign. That was a faith that did not save. And after Jesus taught on the type of faith that it is that actually saves in the Bread of Life discourse, what did they do? They said, no, time out, enough for us, we're done. See you later. Those demands are too steep. There is a faith that damns. There is a faith, and it is a genuine one, that saves. Now this group, in John chapter 7, what type of faith did they have? Well, let me give you the two possibilities. It's either a faith that damns or a faith that saves, right? And maybe you think it's a faith that damns because I read in verse 31 that they're saying when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than this man has. Will he? What was at the the root of their faith? What convinced them? It was the signs, right? They saw the signs and they said, it's the signs that have convinced us that he was the Messiah. That's the same thing that convinced the crowd back in chapter 2. That was the same thing that made them believe in John chapter 6. But was that genuine faith? It wasn't genuine faith. But on the other hand, is a faith that is placed in Him because of the signs necessarily an illegitimate faith? Did not Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 36, say, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me? Isn't isn't it a, a faith that was that was evident in Nicodemus when he came and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a man sent from God, for no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. For Nicodemus and for Jesus in John chapter 5, the presence of signs and the the manifest glory of those signs was evidence of who he claimed to be. So Jesus in John chapter 5 said, look, believe because of the works that I do, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of my claims. Believe in me based upon those signs. So there is a legitimate faith that rests on signs, right? That's possible. This group knew and expected, they had a right, uh, a right expectation of the Messiah because this group expected that when the Messiah came that he would do signs. And that was prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be, deaf will be unstopped and the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. That was a prophecy of what the Messiah would do and the effects of the Messiah coming. So they looked at back at the Old Testament prophets and they said, but when the Messiah comes, we would expect that he would be able to do signs. So is this a shallow sign-based faith that would sort of peter out after a little while and fade with time? Or is this a genuine saving faith? Which one is it? Well, when I started this week, I thought to myself, oh, here we have another example of a sign-based faith. A shallow one. Because their faith is evidently placed in him because of the signs. But then as I went through the week, I began to come to the conclusion that maybe this is a legitimate faith, at least as far as it goes, a real saving faith that is being evidenced here. And if you ask me tomorrow, I'll probably have an entirely different opinion on it. Because John really doesn't tell us. He doesn't, he doesn't indicate to us what type of faith this was. I think it is safe for us to say this, that this was a true, genuine faith, at least as far as it went. And by as far as I went, I mean this. They understood enough of his claims, and what they understood of his claims, they were willing to accept based upon what they saw. Now, would they be willing to embrace him in the light of full revelation? That we don't know. Would they be like the crowd in John 6 that came for a while, but then after he began to teach them, they said, no, that's enough. We've had enough. That we reject. Would they have done that had Jesus taught them another bread of life type discourse in John chapter 7? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But what we do know is that their belief and their willingness to accept him on the terms that he had laid out, at least what they understood at this point, 
This got the ire up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that they could not handle. So we understand the belief of the crowd. Second, we look at the hostility of the Pharisees. Look at verse 32. I need to get there. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. They heard the crowd muttering. The word muttering there means to murmur. It can mean to complain, but probably doesn't mean complain in this context. It probably means the same thing it meant in verse 12 of chapter 7. That low sort of quiet talk, just the under your voice. Let's not let the Pharisees and the Sadducees hear what's going on, but this is how. Remember why they were talking like that in verse 12? Because in verse 13, they didn't want the Jews to hear them talking about Jesus in any positive sense because they feared the religious leaders. So this is the same type of murmuring. The people are beginning to say this, and many in the crowd are beginning to say, well, when the Messiah comes, he's not going to do more signs than this man has done, would he? They kind of keep it hush-hush. So they're murmuring, but the Pharisees catch wind of this. And this, for the Pharisees, is the worst-case scenario. And here's why. They had, the last thing they wanted was anybody in the crowd to believe in Jesus. But so far, in their attempt to keep him from coming to the feast and seizing him before he ever got into Jerusalem, they had failed in that because Jesus managed to creep in underneath the radar and they didn't, they didn't find him. They didn't know he was even in town until it was already too late. He's in the temple teaching. He's got a crowd around him. Well, then we can't really do anything there. So they, they engage in a conversation with him, and he bests them and makes them look like fools, which they were, and really points out the hypocrisy of their Sabbath regulations and traditions. And then after that, they tried to seize him, and that failed. And now a group of people are gathering around him and beginning to believe upon him. So it has just gone from bad to worse for these Pharisees. They have got to do something. Jesus has forced their hand. And so they're trying to seek to seize him again. The worst thing that could have happened was for the crowd to go after Jesus. Why? The Pharisees had the religious, cultural, and social respect of the people. And everybody followed the Pharisees because they were the spiritual leaders of the nation. But then you had Jesus of Nazareth who every time he taught about anything that touched upon the Pharisees condemned their self justifying, self-righteous, hypocritical, shallow-based religion. And their, the commitment to traditions over the Word of God. And so there was obviously a polarizing effect. If you're going to embrace the teachings of Jesus, you must reject the practices and teachings of the Pharisees at the same time. And so if Jesus is to increase, the Pharisees must decrease. They don't want to decrease. They have the power. They have the, the prosperity. They have the respect of the people. And so they have to do something to take Jesus out of the picture. So they try and seize him. And this seems to be an organized attempt to seize him because it says in verse 32 that they went to the chief priests and they got the temple guards. Now, the Pharisees and the chief priests are the two most unlikely of bedfellows. Here's why. The chief priests were part of the sort of religiously liberal sect of Judaism known as the Sadducees. They were theological liberals. They were, their commitment really or their, their, um, what was the word I was looking for there? Escape me. They really had their hands in the worship that went on inside the temple. And so they were elitists because they really didn't have their pulse on the people. They weren't among the common men. They were kind of the upper crust, theological liberals who dealt with the worship inside the temple. And all of the, the income that came from that and all of the sort of the, the uppity, uppity part of the religious life. The Pharisees were the polar opposites. They were theological conservatives. Jesus and the Pharisees held a lot of very common ground theologically. When it comes to orthodox statements of faith, Jesus and the Pharisees' orthodox statement of faith-wise held common ground. But the Pharisees were the theological conservatives. And they were they dealt with all the religious life outside the temple, in the synagogues, out in the streets. And they had the affections of the people. The bulk of the nation, they're sympathetic with the Pharisees, theologically conservative. 
And the Pharisees really had their pulse on the people, which is why it's the Pharisees who hear what the people are saying about Jesus, and they join forces with the Sadducees to get the temple police. The temple police were a group of Levites whose job it was to keep order and um, keep order at religious festivals and feasts like this one. So they were the temple police, and their job was to mill around during big events like the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover and keep the peace. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees get together, and they have the officers go, and basically what this boils down to is an, an official attempt to seize Jesus, and they are the temple guard has authority and jurisdiction over all things that don't pertain to Roman policy. This doesn't pertain to Roman policy, and so basically what they're going to try and do is they're going to try and seize Jesus when they have the opportunity away from the crowds. Now, what is most ironic about this is how a common hatred for the light between the Pharisees and the Sadducees united them. These people were at each other's throats constantly. They didn't like each other. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were on opposite ends of everything, and they constantly fought with each other. But what brings them together? A common hatred for the light. There is nothing like a hatred for the light and a love for darkness that will unite the most polar opposites of people. The one thing they can't agree on is that they hate Jesus. And a hatred for the truth and a hatred for the light brings together the most disparate type of parties and peoples. And that's what has happened here. They're willing to overlook all their other differences if they can get rid of Jesus because he posed a threat to both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but for different reasons. That's the hostility of the Jews. You know the old adage says, the enemy of my enemy is my what? My friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's how both the Pharisees and the Sadducees looked at it. Even if they themselves were enemies, they had a common enemy, and that was Jesus, and that was enough to bring them together. And it did. So we looked at the belief of the crowd and the hostility of the Jews. Now I want you to look at the warning of Jesus. And this is a bit of a, a bit of a difficult statement. We gotta kinda of put our thinking hats on a little bit to kinda of work our way through this and to figure out what Jesus is saying. Particularly in verse 44. Verse 33 is pretty straightforward. Verse 44 makes us wonder what exactly is he describing. Verse 33, therefore, Jesus said, For a little while longer I'm with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Now that's just, that's a warning statement, verse 34 particularly. Verse 33, rather straightforward. Verse 34 confuses us, and it would confuse the Jews of that day, which is why they said, where is he going? Going among the Greeks to teach the Greeks in the dispersion? What does he mean when he says, you're going to seek me and you can't find me? It confused them as well. So we're going to set aside their confusion for just a moment, and we'll work our way through verses 33 and 34 and try and figure out what Jesus is getting at. Verse 33 says that it was therefore, it was because of what has gone on before. Because they were seeking to seize him, then Jesus began to speak of his departure. Now they're persecuting him, and, it's, and keep this in mind, it's in the context of their organized persecution of Jesus that makes Jesus say the statement in verses 33 and 34. There is in verses 33 and verse 34 a bright side to these words and a dark side. There is something of encouragement to God's people and to Christ in verses 33 and 34. And at the same time, on the dark side, there is a very somber warning for unbelievers in verses 33 and 34. So let's look first of all at the bright side. The bright side is really in verse 33 when Jesus says, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. So here's the thing which would be of encouragement to Jesus and to those who are believing upon him in that. Number one, Jesus' time on this earth was drawing to a close, and he knew this, and he was aware of this, and this would have been of encouragement to him. His time on this earth was drawing to a close. I don't think there was anything appealing about coming to this world 
nothing appealing about coming to this world for the Son of God, the sinless Son of God. There was nothing alluring to that. I don't believe that for eternity past, the Son said, I cannot wait to get down there amongst all those rebellious, unbelieving, vile sinners. I can't wait to do that. There was nothing appealing about coming to this sin hole for the Son of God. You know what was appealing to him and what Jesus did look forward to? The joy that was set before him, returning to his Father, having accomplished the mission to enjoy the glory that he had before the world was, that was appealing to him. It is of an encouragement to the Lord when he says, a little while longer, and I'm not going to be here. I am going back to my Father, the one who sent me. That was encouraging to him. The days that we have here are evil, and it is a mercy of God that they are also few. The days that we have here are evil. Have you ever looked back at the lifespans before the flood and thought to yourself, boy, wouldn't it be great to live 800, 850, 900 years? Wouldn't that have been great? The only good thing about that would have been the compound interest. <laughs> That's it. You could invest 100 bucks when you're 18 years old and be a multi-billionaire by the time you died. That would be the only benefit to living 900 years. But quite frankly, I'm nearing 40 years old right now, and I'm weary of this. I see enough sin, I'm exposed to enough iniquity, I, I see enough darkness every day to weary of this. I am so glad that I cannot expect to live more than a 100 years. Our days are evil, and I will tell you, it is a mercy of God that they are few. If you have your eternity in order, and you know Christ, and your sins are forgiven, and you are clothed in the righteousness of Him, and you can look forward to going back to the Father, let me tell you, if you live 60 years, that's better than 70. 70 is better than 80. 80 is better than 90. And all the way up. Our days are evil. It is a mercy of God for us that they are few. And I'll tell you what, Jesus was far more disturbed and far more out of place in this sin hole than you and I are. The fact that he could look forward to the, to the end of his time here and going to be with the Father was a mercy and an encouragement of God. That it was only going to be a little while. Turns out it was six months later that he would die and go back to the Father. So that's the first thing of encouragement. Second, that he gets to go to the Father. Back to the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. John 17, and 24 says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's going back to the one who sent him. That is the Father. And it is an encouragement to you and I as well that because our Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father, that when we die because of what He did, we get to go to the Father as well. Jesus didn't go to soul sleep. He didn't go to hell when He died. He didn't go into oblivion. He went right back to the presence to the bosom of the Father. And because He is there, that is an encouragement for you and I as well. When we do leave this sin hole, when we do leave this life, we get to go right into the bosom of the Father and we are accepted and embraced by Him because of what the Son has done and because we are one with the Son. That is encouragement to us. Not only that our days are few, but also that we get to go with, be with the Father. And third, and this is obvious, the persecutions and the sins and the hostilities which plagued Jesus here would not follow Him to glory. When He went back to the presence of the Father, this persecution and their attempts to seize Him and all the organized hatred of the Jewish leadership would not follow Him past His death. Out of reach out of their touch. And you and I will be out of the touch of sin and self and Satan and the world and the flesh and the devil when we go to be with the Father as well. None of the persecutions and the hostilities and the hatreds of this life will follow us to glory. 
We will be completely away from their touch. That is encouraging to you and I. That's why Jesus says, you're going to seek for me and you're not going to find me. Now that leads us to the dark side of this saying, which is verse 34. And this is the perplexing part. What does Jesus mean when he says, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? Now we might understand what he means by where I am, you cannot come. But what does he mean when he says, you will seek me and will not find me? Who is he, who is he saying this to? The Jewish leaders who were hostile and hating him and trying to seize him because they wanted to kill him. So in what sense would they seek him after he left? After he goes to the Father, how is it that these people are going to seek him? What does he mean by that? That's a bit perplexing. There are three possible ways of understanding verse 34. And normally you would say, okay, Jim's going to give us three and he's going to save the one that he believes for last. He's going to go through the first two and he's going to land with that third one. So I need to pay attention to the third one. And I can zone out for the first two. That's not how we roll today because truthfully the answer could be any or all three of these together. Because all three of these ideas fit with the context. And all three of these things, maybe all together, is exactly what Jesus is talking about. So let me give you these three things. And all of these are somber words of judgment to these Jews to whom he is speaking. First, it could mean that what Jesus is saying is that after he died and went to the Father they would continue to try and persecute him. But they would be unable to. Because where he was going and where he was, they would not be able to come. Now that fits with the context, because they're trying to persecute him now, in John chapter 7. And Jesus is saying, a little while longer, and I'm gone. I'm going to be out of your reach. And you're going to continue to seek after me, to try and persecute me, but you're not, I'm not going to be here for you to lay your hands on me. Because I'm going to be someplace where you can't be. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, Look, the world hated me, and it's going to hate you, because a servant is not greater than his master, and a student is not greater than his teacher. If they hated me because I was not of this world, they're going to hate you because I chose you out of this world. So expect hatred after I leave. Does the world today hate Christ? Oh yeah, they do. Do they wish that they could kill him today? Well, you bet that they do. They can't get their hands on him, so what do they do? What's the next best thing? It's to persecute his church, the people who love him and are most like him, right? It's not the ungodly who suffer persecution. It's the Christians who suffer persecution. So it might be that that is what Jesus is speaking of. Once I leave and go to the Father, you're going to continue to strive against me, but you can't get me. Now, they will be able to get his people. And really, when they persecute the church, when the world and the devil persecutes the church, they are inflicting upon the church what they wish they could inflict upon Christ in person. Because that is the hatred of an unbelieving world and their love for darkness. It might be that that's what Jesus is saying. You're going to try and persecute me, but you won't be able to. Second, it might be that Jesus means this. After he leaves, they are going to continue to seek for the Messiah, but they will not find him. After he leaves, the Jews are going to continue to seek for their Messiah, but they will not find him. Are the Jews today waiting for their Messiah? Generally speaking, there are. There are a few uh, saved Jews who have, are Messianic Jews. They have come to faith in Christ. They recognize that Christ is the Messiah and they've embraced Him as such. But by and large, the official Jewish position on the subject of Jesus is that He was a liar and an imposter and a deceiver. And very few were even willing to admit that He was a good man and a good teacher. But they understand who He claimed to be and so they they embrace the idea that He was a liar and a deceiver. So maybe that what Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to go to the Father and after I leave, you, the Jewish people, are going to continue to wait for the Messiah and seek after Him. You're going to be seeking and waiting for me, but I'm not going to be here. And you are going to be cut off and excluded from my, my kingdom and my presence because where I am at, you are not going to be able to come because you have rejected me. And so today, the Jewish people continue to do the same thing that they have done for 2,000 years, waiting for their Messiah. 
They're continuing to seek for him. But they can't find him and they will wait and have waited in vain because they have rejected the one who is their Messiah and who came. That might be what Jesus is saying. Or third, it might be that Jesus is referring here to the day of judgment. And he is saying there is going to come a day when you are going to realize that you are wrong, but by then it was too late. And on that day you will call out to me and cry out for mercy, but the day of mercy and grace will be past. You will have had your opportunity. You have rejected that opportunity. So when I am gone and I go to the Father, you're going to call out for mercy and grace from me, but by then it is too late because hell really is a state of knowledge learned too late. Everybody in hell knows the truth. Everybody in hell is aware of the truth, and they, they, they regret the fact that they have made such erroneous mistakes, but they've learned that lesson too late. And they don't understand who Jesus, or they understand who Jesus is, but they cannot receive from His hand mercy and grace because the day of grace is entirely past. Because it's too late. That might be what Jesus is referring to. Once I go to the Father, then you're going to realize what you have done. And you are going to call out to me for mercy on that day. But by then it will be too late. And I, that mercy from me will not be found by you. And you will not be able to come or be where I am at because you have rejected me. And you, because you remain unsaved and rejected me, will not be able to come there. It might be that Jesus means one, two, or all three of those things. Or maybe I've entirely miffed it and so have everybody else for 2,000 years and we have no idea what he meant. But I think all three of those explanations of verse 34 would fit. They fit the context, they fit theology, they fit orthodoxy, and it may be that Jesus means all of that. To reject him is to be damned. It is completely just for God to forsake those who think that his presence is a burden rather than a blessing. You realize that? Unbelievers want nothing more than to be rid entirely of Christ. They wish that they could get as far away from him and away from his influences and away from his person and away from his light as they can possibly be. They hate the light and they love the darkness. We saw that all the way back in chapter 3. Unbelievers want to be rid of God. And you realize that once they get what they want, it is their doom. It's not a blessing but a curse. And those who believe that the presence of Christ is a burden in this life will find that the removal of his presence in the life to come is in fact a curse. And they will get in hell for eternity what they have wanted in this life. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. To be rid of him, to be rid of him, and to be rid of him. And when he finally says, all right, enough is enough, I am forsaking you, and he removes all of the blessings of his goodness and his kindness and his grace for all of eternity, the unbeliever then realizes the thing that I thought I wanted is a curse and not a blessing. And now I get that for all of eternity. That's the somber warning of verse 34. You reject me now, but there will come a time when you will cry out to me, but I will not answer. That's why Scripture says, do not harden your heart. Pursue God while he may be found. Seek him while he is near. Because the day of God's mercy does not last forever. And there is coming a time and there is coming a day when that mercy will no longer be extended and it will be too late. You cannot wait to get saved to the 11th hour. You cannot put that off. You must deal with the Lord today and now. And then you can rest in the fact that when we seek him, when you seek him, you will be found by him because he is near to you today. But that will not always be the case. Well, that takes us to the end of verse 34, but not to the end of our passage, 35 and 36, and we will save that. And their confusion, there's, there's more there in verse 34, by the way. That statement, where I am, 
That is a statement of his deity. That's a statement of his deity, and we'll save that and their confusion over his words for next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, your grace and kindness to us are so evident in all that you have given to us and by bringing us to yourself. And the salvation that you have brought us to, you have brought us to by causing our hearts to seek after you and to know you. And we are thankful for that and that you by your grace have done that. We thank you that we have escaped by your grace the judgment that is to come to those who will not seek you. And there will come a day when they will call out and cry for mercy, but there will be none. For the time of mercy will have passed. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Make us all mindful of this, we pray, and may we respond according to your grace and your kindness to us. Thank you for Christ, and thank you for what he has done to bring us near to you while there was yet time to be drawn near to you. We owe all of our thanks and praise and all the glory for our salvation to you. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.